1: Just one part
0: that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The Professional Parts People. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You. You. Can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your guide to the whitetail woods. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light. Go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to
2: the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This week on the show, I'm joined by Mark Drury's farm managers, Wade Robinson and Perry Batten, to discuss the habitat strategies they employ to create world-class whitetail hunts. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And today we are kicking off another series and it is Habitat Month. That's right, four straight weeks of whitetail habitat discussions. We're gonna cover everything from food plots to timber stand improvement to grass management and water holes and hinge cutting and who the heck knows, soil health, regenerative agriculture, everything from this way to that way. Everything we can be doing to improve our properties for deer and deer hunting and all sorts of other critters, too. I think that's an important thing to remember. We have an opportunity and, and, and I would say an obligation to not only, you know, steward our landscapes for the creatures we want to hunt, but also for all of those other creatures out there um, who share that landscape the birds and the bees and the pollinators and turkeys, squirrels, rabbits raccoons it's all an interconnected system and uh, by working to improve these places we can help that entire ecosystem which I think is a pretty darn cool thing so that's why I'm particularly excited to take off another month of this habitat kind of discussion Um, I found myself a lot last season dreaming about oh man I wish I could have done this thing or I wish I'd improved this area I wish I could have you know, tweak this food plot in this kind of way. Or I wonder what I should do different next year. There's there's been a lot of those kinds of questions. Um, as you all know, or at least longtime listeners. Um, you know, I had a had a really fun hunting season last year, re energized and excited to uh to do some new things this year. So there's gonna be a lot of work done on my side on a property I have permission on, and then on my family uh deer camp up north, hopefully we'll be doing some work too. So we'll uh we'll be exploring some of those ideas as we go along. But Like I said, it's Habitat Month, and we're kicking things off today with a really great duo of guests, and I'm going to give you a little bit of background on them in a second. But I want to first give you, I'm not going to say homework, but I want to give you some uh, extra reading material. If you want to dive deeper into these different Habitat ideas that we're going to discuss today and this month, I wanted to share four different, well, it might be actually five, Five different reading recommendations. If you follow my Instagram account over at Wired Hunt, you know I'm a big reader, always digging into different things. And that applies to deer and habitat related topics too. And so I've got five books here that I highly recommend if you want to get more habitat ideas, if you want some more detailed insight into how to improve and manage your land for wildlife and whitetails, here are some recommendations. First, I'm a really big fan of Whitetail Deer Management and Habitat Improvement. Very creative title. <laughs> That's the title of the book by Steve Bartilla. Steve's been on the show in the past. We've talked habitat in the past with him. And this book is it does a really good job of of covering the whole slate of management questions, habitat improvements. Um, but particularly, he does a lot of illustrations, maps, where he showcases his plans, his designs, how he... You know, plots out different things, how he puts in access routes and food plots and habitat and cover improvements, all that kind of good stuff like that. The diagrams are are really helpful. A lot of good pictures that showcase some of the work he does. So so that's a really good one. Another great book, if you want to really get into the nitty gritty of food plots, this is probably the the top book I would recommend if you are starting as a food plotter and just need like everything from A to Z covered. It's Quality Food Plots. And it's published by the Quality Deer Management Association. Or well, it was published by the QDMA. Now they're known as the National Deer Association. I believe they still sell it on their website. Um, so that's called Quality Food Plots. Really, really good. Kind of step by step by step as far as everything you need to know to prepare locations, to choose locations, to amend the soil, to you know take soil tests, to choosing the right seed to plant, to how to manage it. You know, just everything. So definitely check that one out. The next set of books is a, is a duo here as well. And it is Whitetail Habitat Success by Design and Food Plot Success by Design. Uh, the first book is kind of a more holistic set of ideas across all habitat projects, while the second one is is very food plot focused. Um, but both of these books, what I like about them uh, written by Jeff Sturgis, of course, is Jeff's approach to habitat management and improvement. It's very system focused. By that I mean he does not recommend anything in isolation. He's not going to say, "I'll ah, just plant a food plot wherever," and here's what you should plant and here's why. No, it's it's always connected. He 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 discusses and really emphasizes the connected nature of everything on a property. So if you put a food plot here. What does that mean for the bedding and what does that mean for your access and how do all these things interact? and how will the deer movement change and how will that impact how you can get in and out or how you should hunt? And so it's a very strategic approach to habitat improvements and to food plot design, location, planting, all that stuff. It's very, very good. So if you want to take that next step in your habitat work and your food plotting work, um, these two are, are really good. really diving into that, you know how does this all impact a hunting strategy? And then last, another book called Grow em Right by Neil and Craig Doherty. Uh, another really good overview of a m- bunch of different things when it comes to habitat improvement and, and more of a habitat management philosophy. I think there's, there's definitely some how-tos in here, but I love the philosophy that Neil and Craig share here. Um, Craig was a mentor of mine uh, previous to his passing, and I, I can't... Uh, can't tell you how much I appreciated some of the things he taught me early on, and I think this book does a great job of continuing sharing some of those messages and insights to people through the written word. So those are my five habitat book recommendations. Check them out if you want to further your foundation in this kind of stuff. Uh, so that is a long roundabout way of getting to our main kind of topic of discussion, which is how Mark Jury has such amazing whitetail hunting properties. How does he get these amazing deer year after year after year? How does he keep so many deer in these areas? How does he have so many quality hunts? How does he manage these places so darn well, so consistently? That's our topic of discussion. And we're doing it with the two guys who are the blood, sweat, and tears behind Mark Drury's, or at least behind much of Mark Drury's success. Not saying he's not doing a lot of this work too, but he has the help of Wade Robinson and Perry Batten, his farm managers who are out there seemingly every day doing some kind of project. And my goal today was to get a behind-the-scenes look at just what they're doing, how they're doing it, what the strategies are that they're employing, You know how they think about food plot design, food plot location, what they plant, where they plant it, how they plant it, how they deal with drought. Um, what are the little tweaks and tiny details that they focus on that most people don't? I think that's something that really stands out about Mark is his attention to detail, not just with hunting, but with his property designs and habitat improvements. And we're going to dive into that as well. There's some, some really interesting things there that, uh, that Wade and Perry share. So that's the game plan. Wade and Perry are good guys, smart guys, hard workers, and uh, they really know how to do this work and do it well. That's why I was so excited to have him on the show. And that's the game plan for today's episode. So without any further ado, let's listen to Wade Robinson and Perry Batten. And then I will definitely recommend you guys check out everything the guys over the Drury Outdoors team are doing on their DeerCast app, their YouTube channel. It's all great stuff. So without further ado, Wade and Perry. All right, with me now on the line, I've got Mark Drury's terrible twosome of Wade Robinson and Perry Batten. Guys, thank you for being here.
3: Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Yes, sir. No problem.
2: I, uh, I'm glad we're finally getting to chat. I've talked to Mark a lot over the years and have been there to HQ and hung out, but I've yet to get to bump into you guys. So I'm glad we're finally finally connecting and, and talking about something that I know that all three of us really love. And this time of year, I think it's top of all of our minds, which is, uh, which is habitat work, which is working the ground, growing, you know, wildlife and and making for some cool memories out there. So, so I got to start with a quick question for you both right now, you know, as we're getting into like late winter, maybe you'd call this, are you resting and recouping at all? Or do you feel like you're (laughs) revving up already into like the busy season already because you can see like 19,000 different things already on your to-do list to prepare for next year. How how do you feel right now uh, on that?
1: You know you know, going into this time of year we we just finished up uh Missouri into January fifteenth and uh this is a time that if we're going to take a a little week vacation or a long weekend, this is a time to do it but um like i say the the work definitely doesn't slow down we uh you know this morning we were already putting out uh analogics and trying to keep the deer healthy bringing in bringing them into next year, so
3: yeah, and I mean we certainly have a little bit shorter days kind of due to the season and you know, hot, cold, if the ground's not frozen, we can't do some of the things we want to do. And then like tonight, we're not going to go coyote hunting. So it'll be a long night, long hours, if you will. It's something we enjoy, but you know, we certainly have some shorter days now that the season's over, but, but we don't shut down. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And I guess that's part of the beauty of it, right? It's, it's fun stuff all year round, a lot of work, (laughs) but you like doing it. Um,
1: So exactly, we finish up uh, just to start over again. (laughs) Yeah.
2: So, so here's something I want to kind of kick things off with a little bit. And that's, you know, the fact that there's so many folks that have watched the product of what you guys do, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. people have watched Mark's and your guys' hunts on TV and YouTube for years. They've seen all these, you know, beautiful looking places. They've seen these big old deer. They've, they've seen the hunts. And I think a lot of folks make assumptions based on that. I think a lot of folks kind of know, well, oh, this is how it goes, or this is what they must be doing, or this is how it is. Um, I mean, I may think even maybe for you guys yourselves, before you started working for Mark, I imagine you had an idea of, you know, what it was that was going on behind the scenes. So my question for you is, if you had to kind of put yourselves in the listener's shoes right now, and if you were just an average guy listening to this podcast, making assumptions about you know, how things go when it comes to creating the kind of hunting that you guys have. And that Mark has, what's one assumption that you think people make that is wrong? What's one thing we, that we should just like get off the table right now. That's, that's wrong. That a lot of people think <laughs> is true. Either one of you can, well, can jump.
1: we've never, we, <laughs> we've never stepped foot one in a high fence. Yep. Um, that's probably one of the biggest things. And, and another thing is, is, property sizes everybody thinks that we're hunting these thousand acre farms you know five thousand acre farms and uh that's definitely not the case granted i started probably 12 years ago and in in the earlier years we had some bigger farms right around that thousand acre mark um but here over the last five years we've made a huge trans transition into a smaller satellite farms type approach and uh,
3: Biggest acreage consecutive farm we have currently is 417 acres.
1: Yeah. Wow. So I mean, which is a which is a big farm, but
3: I mean we're we're also
1: hunting 40 acre farms, 50 acre farms, and a ton of 80
3: acre farms. Yeah. You know, that a lot of 80s, some 120s, a couple 40s um, across both states, Iowa and Missouri. But yeah, definitely the high fence comment, and <laughs> that we have you know 5,000 acres that's manicured like someone's yard to hunt is a, is a false statement. So, yeah. But I mean, and,
1: and the hours and and work that, like you just said, the hours and work that myself, Perry, Mark, uh, Terry Forrest, you know, we all put into these farms is what they're seeing in that, you know, 30 minute episode on TV. Uh, You don't get to see that the hours, days, blood, sweat,
3: tears that go in into, into this, these farms. Yeah. You know. Everybody just sees the 30 minute, 30 minute <laughs> episode on TV or YouTube and think these guys got a great Well, <laughs> It looks so <laughs> easy. Great. I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, this morning our work truck, the starter was clicking. So that was, you know, just right <laughs> off the bat, you know, some Monday morning, it's not Monday, but, uh, just simple things like that can make your day go South real quick.
2: So, yeah. Uh, speaking of Monday mornings, I saw a meme uh, today that made me chuckle. It said, uh, mondays are a stick that looks like a shed (laughs) and i thought yep (laughs) you see that stick up there and you go running after like ah shit (laughs) that's not a shed um (laughs) anyways to uh to that to that one main assumption about the farm size i think that's really interesting what you were saying wade about this transition you guys made what was that what was the thought Mm -hmm. process about that what what led (laughs) to mark wanting to switch from the big farms to the bunch of small pieces and satellite kind of approach
1: yeah so my uh very first year 2012 i started in the summer and mark was so excited uh we had all these great year on on camera in uh you know june july and then all of a sudden august hit and bam ehd hit one of the hardest years other than 2008 it hit really hard but in 2012 it hit so hard and literally wiped out, we had, you know, a couple different bigger farms, uh, you know, it just wiped out the whole population of bucks, basically. I mean, we had some, some nice bucks to still chase, but it wiped out 80%, 80% of our deer. So, um, you know, Mark was kind of talking to different guys and stuff. And, um, you know, this guy's farm over here, five miles, didn't even get touched touch with the HD. They never found a dead, dead deer one. So Mark's thinking, he's like, man, we got to, We got to, you know, broaden our, our spectrum here. We got to get out of these big farms because if EHD hits, it wipes out your whole year or your whole, you know, five years, next five years is is tough. Um, So he went to the the more satellite type approach because EHD is so spotty. um, It allows you to get hit over here and not ruin, you know, the next five years to come. So we just bounce around to the different 40, 50 80 acre pieces. Granted, like Perry said, we have, you know, we do have a couple other uh, farms that are are a little bit bigger in size. You know, 417 acres is is our largest track right now, consecutive track. Granted, um, you know, there's like-minded managers that are our neighbors in some of these spots, but our largest track is 417 acres. So, um, you know, basically the main reason was EHD um, and hunting different, a bunch of different deer herds, you're more likely to have a really good deer, um, versus, you know, your farm get hit one year and you have to wait, you know, three to five years to to have another really nice deer to chase. Mm. And so far, man, it's, uh, it's definitely been,
2: been paying off. So outside of just the EHD kind of risk mitigation, what about how, you know, has, has it panned out the way you guys thought from, uh, you know being able to still hunt and hold big deer side of things because the 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 risk a lot of times people worry about with these small properties is that you just don't have as much influence over what deer make it through your age structure all that kind of stuff have you guys have you seen like is the satellite approach harder or is it easier because you have so many other um, options and you can you know check this farm this farm this farm
1: well i mean i would say that I mean, it's definitely harder to raise and grow a big deer. Granted, we've done it. Um, We've had deer that, you know, I have those deer that stay on those smaller parcels and and just don't leave. Um, But, uh, you know, I I think it it can be a little harder in that regards. But you just have to find the right farm, the right small farm, and make it as good as possible, have food, have cover. And, uh, you know, that's the main thing is, is you know, you have these smaller farms. But make that smaller farm the best possible farm
3: it can be is the main, Pretty you sure. know, main thing. Yeah, I would I would add to that also is you know we have a little bit of risk factor when it comes to all of our smaller farms because we have to deal with more neighbors. Granted, as many farms as we have, we have some really really good neighbors that yeah. are that are on the same mindset mindset as us. I mean, there's a few you know bad apples here and there, but that's just part of the game and. Uh, and also to add to the small farm is intrusion. Like we do not step foot on these places.
1: Shed season
3: is about the only time in planting and hunting. And, and, some, it.
1: and some of them, you know, we'll, we'll hunt only once.
3: Yeah. Twice a year. If there's not like a definite mature deer that's on the list to kill, we might not step foot on it one time.
1: But we'll plant it and act
3: like there's a 200 on it. Correct. Know? Yeah. Every farm gets treated the same as far as food plots and access and everything goes on the setup, but if the mature deer is not there to kill, we don't, we don't
2: mess with it. No, let them grow. Yeah. You mentioned Wade, I think it was you who said that a big part of it is, is getting the right small farm. What have you guys found so far when it comes to identifying like a small farm that can actually perform, you know, at a higher level, that can hunt bigger or hold, you know, more deer. Have you guys kind of fine tuned what it takes to find that right small farm yet?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, again, the, 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 number one part of that is, is due diligence on the, on the neighbors and, and what they're killing and, yeah. and what, you know, what they're willing to pass. Um, that is, I would say 90% of it, because if they're shooting every two and three year old buck that, you know, walks by them, I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're shooting for the moon at that yeah. point. Neighbors. So neighbors is probably number one. Um, due diligence on that. And then, you know, obviously you want a, a good ratio between, between cover and, and open ground so that you could plant food and, and hold deer, um, or have a lot of cover around you and plant, you know, have a lot of cover on the neighbors and, and plant your big food on your open ground. So, I mean, there's, we have different farms with that. We have different tactics on, yeah, um, both. yeah, I mean, we have a, uh, 50 acre lease that's uh, uh all open tillable but it butts up to about 1500 acre block of timber well obviously there's acorns and stuff in the timber but you know we plant a big food plot and uh early and late season you know like taking candy from a baby they all you know on a on a wide open tillable field you know we'll see 70 80 100 deer a night you know you just main goal is, is to plant
3: food and have make them want to be on that property yeah yeah The neighbors in that country he's talking about are pretty good too. Yeah. Everyone over there kind of wants to shoot big deer and, and, uh, late season and early season, we do, we do well there because we always got food. So, so, uh, so with that,
1: and that is a lot of, that is a a big thing that a lot of people overlook. They're like, why do you guys have all the deer? Why are you seeing 50, 70, you know, 80 deer a night? Well, you know, we got food, like people think that you know that these deer are just going to come out to a, a cut field yeah they they will if that's all that they got around um you know because there's residual and stuff out there um but you might see if there's eight a, deer, you might see 12 if deer. there's a standing field next by they're going to that one <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah especially with these well not so harsh the past couple of years but harsher winters yeah. here in southern iowa northern missouri you know you get snow on have standing food you'll have all the deer
2: so would you say well, eh, and I know that the, I, I hesitate even to even ask the question because I know it's it's always situation dependent, but if you had to rank order the importance of the different major factors in whitetail habitat when you guys are trying to, you know, make one of these small properties the best it can be, if you had to rank, you know, food, cover, water and let's say access how would you rank those four? If you had to, uh, you know, taking out, you know, all the unique variables, just if we had to average it out, how would you yep. rank those four things uh, You know, either one, of you, Perry, you want to start?
3: I would say cover is number one. Um, you you can't have, I mean, deer don't live in a, a wide open uh, cut cornfield, cut beanfield. You know, you can own 40 acres of tillable. If there's no cover around it, you're having wildlife. So I would say that was number one. And uh, I think access for me would be number two. And then food being number three. I think that'd be the top for me. Um, Interesting. Because, honestly, you can have the best looking farm on in the United States. But if your access is horrible, you, you might as well just chalk it up as a loss. Because you're going to blow them and spook them every time you try to go to it. Yeah, What do you think, Wade?
1: Uh, I agree with Perry. Um, you know, I would obviously, like Perry said, the cover, If you, they're not going to go bed in a wide open corn or bean field. Um, you know, so, I mean, yeah, it's hard to argue the cover, but access has always been number one for me. Just like Perry said, if you have bad access, you, you're going to blow the deer out that you're supposedly hunting before you even see them. And 95% of the time, you don't even know that you did it. You know, they won't even let you know. They'll just, you just won't have a good set. You won't see any deer, you'll get skunk. So access is in my opinion number one. Uh in any type of hunting, you gotta you gotta be able to get in there without them knowing that you're there. And then um obviously uh cover for them to stay in and, and food. I mean if you don't have no food particularly late, they are not gonna come by you very yeah. very regularly. So yep. and then obviously water's great during the rut but you know, we we started doing some water holes uh over the last couple of years and uh you know, this past fall we've had uh probably one, two, three, three different bucks uh that were mature that uh you know, we could have killed over water. Um you yeah, know, we almost
3: killed one on on a water hole. Yeah, almost yep. killed one um on a water hole. So um but, I don't, I, the only reason I didn't rank water high is because you know, you can run a track hoe, you can hire somebody, you can put water where you want, really. Um, you know, we've taken fields that are flat food plot, you know, get a track hoe in there and dig, you, dig you a water hole, kind of design the setup, you know. Might take a little bit, little bit of time to get some rain and fill it up, but, I mean, you can get water where you want, really.
1: Yeah, and most of these farms have, in Iowa particularly, you know, it's so hilly and ditchy, you know, there's water about anywhere. Yeah, you know, small I mean they, creeks, they, can, they can get their water about anywhere, so it's not as a big of a factor um for us here in in Iowa and Missouri.
2: Yeah. But no, I guess here's a slightly different way to look at that same kind of topic. Um if you've got, let's say just like a an average piece of dirt that's got some cover, it's got some openings, it's got a stream or a pond or something. so there's a little bit of everything on it. Um What have you found to be, you know, if you had to pick like the most impactful project, if there was, you know, if I told you, hey, you can only make, you can only work on one project this year. It's going to be your only improvement you're allowed to make on this average piece of ground that has some openings. It's got some food. It's got some cover. It's it's already got a little bit of everything, but nothing's great. And you had the opportunity to do one big project. You know, my, my assumption, I jumped to assuming you would put in some awesome food source. Am I right on that? Or is there something else that you would actually find to be more yeah. impactful? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I. You know, food plot architecture um, would definitely be number one. Make, you know, make them
3: come within bow range. Yeah. And make it as large as feasible to your population on the place and uh, feasible to hunt. Yeah. And then... Plant to your position
0: yeah now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal And you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeEater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list.
2: And I mean, you came into this in 2012, Wade, and, and Perry, it's it's just been a handful of years now for you, right? Maybe three years. Is that right?
3: Yep. Yep. Yeah. Three years now.
2: Okay. So when you walked in the, you know, quote unquote door, walk in the door and Mark takes you out to one of the farms for the first time, or you get out there for the first spring or summer or whenever it was, and you started working on food plots with him. Do you remember, you know, I guess what I... What's what surprised you the most or shocked you or what stands out when you first got a look at how his mind is when it comes to this stuff or what his approach is to food plot architecture or his or how demanding he is about some aspect of it? Is there anything that stood out when you like got started where you were like, holy crap, this is a this is a different guy or this is we're going to be doing things different. What what would that be would Absolutely. So. The number one thing is definitely intrusion, like uh,
1: whether you're talking out, you don't talk out loud, you make sure you have everything you need for the project at hand and only go into that farm one time. If you forget something, you're going to hear about it. You do not (laughs) want to go in multiple times if you can help it. That is the number one thing. And again, that goes back to number one with access. You know, like if you're blowing the deer out, if they don't feel comfortable being in your farm, they're not going to be there. So intrusion and access two main main things right out the get-go
3: yeah i mean i just revolt back to uh, me being in the service attention to detail anyone who's been in the service has heard that um statement many times but mark's very detailed in the way he lays things out and the way we do the work to you know conduct that project or whatever it is we might be doing but you know from the littlest details of like don't mow behind the blind so the deer don't walk behind you or anything like that. Some stuff that I did when I first started, cause oh, yeah. I didn't know any better. You
1: only do it once.
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, definitely attention to details. And that's the reason why it's so successful. Why Drew why Outdoors and all of us as a whole are so successful.
2: Are there any other of these little things that stand out to you, like little no-nos, like don't mow behind the blind or... Or any other details that you know, most folks never think about. That in your mind are like big flashing neon lights because of him. Oh gosh, yes, we do not
1: go on the farm if there's any if there's any risk of ruts. Like his biggest pet peeve is ruts, uh, whether they're <laughs> half inch deep or, or a foot deep.
3: Erosion. Oh,
1: yeah, just because our ground is so hilly here, it erodes, and then we have to drive across it all the time, and it's bumpy and and but yeah, his. His deal with erosion and and you know that type of soil conservation is is very very high up in one yep. of those pet
3: peeves. Don't drive across his yard here at his house. <laughs> uh, something I did right off the bat. I took <laughs> I took traffic. a took a buggy to go check a a board. Oh, yeah. We were shooting sighting a gun and I drove the buggy <laughs> across the yard. He goes, don't ever do that again. <laughs> you know, so. we don't get off the driveway. It's uh you know it's
1: nothing too major but uh it's major to him and yeah you know he you know he made those things clear right off right off the get-go And we do not do that and uh we make sure anybody who's in camp knows that ahead of time right. to save them from the earful
2: details 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 um exactly you yep. uh, know and,
1: and and i think that's you know what has made jury outdoors so successful is is the detail oriented little it's the little stuff that that you know
3: Especially, you know, on the small farms we hunt, if the neighbor's intrusive or the neighbor does something we don't, that gives us that little bit of upper hand to get the deer on us, you know? So Yeah.
2: So let's, let's take that kind of detail idea and, and kind of apply it to what you guys just mentioned is, is probably the most impactful project you guys would usually work on, which is that food, um, First, I guess, when it comes to like a food project and a food plot, is, is choosing the right location for it. And I, I'm always really interested. I, I yep. like how you guys do a good job on a lot of these videos of showing, you know, where you're putting new food plots and why you're putting them there and stuff. But I guess it, at a high level, when you guys are making, you know, looking at the map on a farm and talking about whether it's a new farm or just a piece where you haven't worked yet and you're trying to choose, okay, where are we going to put the plots? Can you, can you guys walk me through? you know, what those most important criteria are to you when you're thinking through, all right, this is where we need to put it or this is the easy spot to put one, but no, we can't do it because of X and Y. What would those things be?
1: Yeah. Well, again, back to our first statement, number one would be access. We got to make sure we can get into these spots um, without the deer knowing that we're there. Um, And number two, we always use an outside looking in approach. We do not enter the timber. Um, You know, we may carve out a food plot get a dozer in and do something on the edge, but we just leave this, the core un unpenetrated. And, uh, you know, so we always try and get the deer to come to us versus go in, move in on the deer. Like, um, those are two of the, I would say the most main.
3: Yeah. With for the sure. I mean, it all starts really at Mark's dinner table here at the house, myself, Wade and Mark sit down, jump on deer cast maps and and look at it from an aerial view of a map um, first and say, okay, you know, what winds can we hunt it on? Where's our access going to be? And then design the plot. Yeah. And, you know, going back to what Wade said, most of our plots are on the edge. We don't we don't ever dive deep into a farm because if you do, your access is never, never good. Never as so, good as if it's on the outside. Right. I mean – our plots are always determined mainly on access and
2: wind direction that we can own. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so these plots are usually on the edges. They're usually, you know, access, uh, related, I guess. How much though do you factor in or worry about, you know, um, distance to, um, neighbors? So I guess what I'm trying to get at is, I've always worried, one of the things you worry is if you put food too close to a property line, too close to the edge, you risk the neighbors impacting that food source or trying to hunt um, deer coming to it or something like that. You know, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we always definitely take that into consideration. Um, we try and, just as being neighborly, we try and, you know, stay away from the, stay away from the lines.
3: I mean, um, you know, because, yeah, we've had... We don't want to benefit benefit a neighbor but also sometimes you don't have the you know on some of these smaller farms we have we don't have the dirt to get away from them as much yeah we have to be somewhat close and that's just kind of how it how it crumbles down you know so yeah it's all farm dependent but
1: um you know again goes back to our due diligence on you know when the neighbors hunt what time of year you know if they're just gun hunting you know it, it may
3: not be as big of an issue um you know or you know the biggest the biggest thing is no matter how close we might be to the neighbor normally it's just an access route down a fence line and then we would get into our food plot where the blind is obviously faced into our ground or the tree stands face into us you know never (laughs) we're never facing someone else's farm and and stuff like that however uh, our neighbors can't always (laughs) say the same yeah (laughs) our neighbors (laughs) like to yeah
2: but So another thing I I, on this, sorry, another question I had related to this location thing is I I have often seen Mark talk about trying to tuck them, you know, access is still good, but it seems like you guys tuck them up next to, you know, I've heard like the Buck Hotel and stuff like that. You try to push them pretty close to these bedding areas. So how important is it to be like (laughs) smack dab against them versus like a transition corridor in between you and the bedding? Like, how tight do you want them to be?
1: I mean, our, our bow-kill-type spots um, are closer to the bedding because, you know, to get those mature bucks up on their feet during daylight hours, you have to be um, close to that bedding. And, and, you know, Perry can hit on this subject a little bit more, but, you know, if there's not bedding close, we will go in and, and make bedding, uh, you know, with TSI and hinge cutting and all that, that type of stuff. So we, we do like to get in close to that bedding, um, but yet where our access is still good
3: right and to his point of that like when we do tsi if i you know throw my stuff on grab my saw and just start walking to a general area we've picked out we want to do tsi when i get to a spot of that area i turn around call it 150 normally is about where it's at 200 yards no, we like to be off the cover yeah we have the bedding Be like to be off the edge of the food plot to create the bedding you know i want to get to that spot where i can't see the field so that way when deer bed there, they can't see us get
2: into our blind, our tree stand, and come down our access. So, Yep. that makes sense. Okay. Um, now, another, I guess, tag on to that. I, I often think about how deer transition, you know, from bedding to a food source to uh, a neck to the next food source. You know, how often are you? placing food plots in such a way to be like a transition food source versus like the final destination, big food source? Like, are you on most of these properties? Do you try to have both or just one or the other? Or is it never big destination food sources now? It's always little transitions. Like talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, almost on all of our farms, I would say that we have both. Um, you know, like I was talking about earlier, we just plant to our position. I mean, one of our farms, um, you know, what is it? 16 acres of, of ag field that we got.
3: Yeah. We got
1: 16 acres in this bottom field and we direct the the deer right past us with walking strips. Um, you know, that walking strips, radish fields, um, out in the middle of these giant grain destination fields so yeah i mean some way shape or form you know we're we're hunting these transition areas to get them within bow range and granted we back off whenever we have a, a gun in our hands but
3: yeah tip. i mean typically even on small farms like say we've got say we got three acres like at like at uh where mark killed this year over there in the west stuff um uh, 50 acre farm or 48 i think that you know, we have about three, two and a half, three acres to work with. We have a green field that's half acre directly in front of the blind and then, uh, are surrounding it on the rest of the field. We have standing beans. So kind of a, a dual edged sword there, you know, you can hunt it bow season early on the green and then, you know, gun comes and you got 120 yard shot and some standing bean field that, uh, we try to keep the deer, you know, destination there and train, you know, they're transitioning to both green and grain. And then obviously some filter passes and go out to bigger grain fields, but typically it's very dark and, uh, legal light has, has expired by then. So. And a lot of these spots where we're back off of the food or back off
1: of the cover rather, um, you know, we'll go in and and we'll make walking strips, uh, to help guide them into our green field. Like from the, you know, the edge of the timber is again, we, we hunt a lot of blinds. That's another thing that we get a lot of,
0: uh, you know, a headache
1: over. Everybody hates that we're in blinds, but all these spots, you know, we wouldn't be, you know, if we were sitting in a tree on the edge of the timber, you would, hell, you would stop half your movement because your wind would have to be either blowing over the food or blowing over the cover, um, versus getting off the, the backside of that, that food plot and blowing it over, you know, a safe spot. So, you know, sometimes we have to, you know, walk them all the way through that field to get to our within bow range at a radish field or, or a clover field right in front of the blind, you know, and be standing beans or standing
2: corn elsewhere. So, so speaking of that, then like these big fields versus the smaller fields and how you get them to come past a bow spot. I've seen like this example you described where you do this kind of green and grain combo we've got that green tight for the mm-hmm. bow shot and then you know they can filter out to the larger bean field or whatever. Um, when it comes to size of these food sources, what's the what's the minimum and maximum size for these food plots that you guys have found to make it effective? Uh, and are there some spots where you are like, man, we're gonna put a huge food source in and we know this will never be a great bow spot because it's too big and so you just kind of set up his gun or does every single food plot you guys put in, has to be like, okay, here's the bow setup and here's the unique thing we're going to do with the design or the, you know, walking strips. And then here's the the gun option.
1: It, it seems like every one of our food plots has a bow setup, you know, like yeah. we, whenever we, like Perry was saying, whenever we sat down, look over DeerCast maps, um, you know, we figure out exactly where we need to be to be able to intercept them going to the big food what we need to do, whether it be plant or uh, you know, drive lanes through the beans or or what it may be, we always seem to have a bow spot. I think there's what maybe two or three of our all of our farms that or fields that we just got
3: strictly gun hunt. Yeah, this year probably. There's yeah, only two or three that and even I mean even some big uh bean fields that we have, we just go in, set the tiller down and till up a walking strip. You know, and plant green, and yeah. nine times out of ten they follow that path. It's, least yeah, it's it's a weird deal that I first saw when I started, and I was like, made a believer out of me real quick. <laughs> something
1: something so small, even even like Perry said, if it's just a walking strip, um, or or granted, you don't have a tiller, or you don't want to plant, uh, green, you know, just driving, you know, your truck through you know yeah. and you have a lease and the farmer leaves five acres of standing beans and you drive your truck through those beans they're going to walk that path get 25 yards off that path uh, down the middle of the field and you know they're going to walk that path yep. and get within bow range
3: it's something so simple like that that you could turn up a, a five acre food plot and you know into a bow hunting type yeah. area have a blind out in the middle of the field and you know drive your truck buggy four-wheeler whatever you want make make a two track and they're gonna walk it yeah we did it in a spot where we have a big standing grain field that's in the wide open and then put a scrape tree where we met our uh tracks together and had a cell cam on it and it did great i mean bucks worked that scrape out in the middle of the no man's land in the middle of a bean field So, all
2: right so I, I love these i love these little tweaks that you can make to a food plot to make it hunt better so so one of these things that you just mentioned is the, the walking strips. And so uh, I like the idea of just driving through it. If you can't, if you don't have the time or, or tools or whatever to plant these strips of green, you can just drive and make yep. a path. But then when you're doing the green strips, sure. can, you, can you tell me in a little more detail how you like to do those green strips? Do you, I'm assuming you, you're planting your beans or I guess, do you ever do this with corn or is it always beans? And then what do you usually yep. like to plant yep. in those strips?
1: No, we do it. We do it with both corner beans. Um, and because the strips are so small, um, we always do something like a, a wheat or an oat or a combination wheat, oat, rye. Um, just because if you do... We've done it in radishes or whatever. They just don't... It'll end up being a dirt strip. So, um, you
3: know, we always do those... Something that continues to grow. Yeah,
1: after they handle some the pressure.
3: Yeah, so that's what we...
1: But, to it.
3: yeah, I mean biggest thing is like if it's corny you you know get a little mower in there and mow your path and then till it up and and then hand seed it and hand fertilize it and if it's just beans you know we got six foot tiller on the back of a tractor and and till you a path and you know do the same thing hand seed and hand fertilize i would just till right through the crop yeah till right through the beans um but you know like i said if you don't don't have that equipment I mean, somebody, somebody could go in there with a lawnmower and, you know, normally underneath that exposed dirt of a crop field, you know, there's enough dirt you could get, you could get wheat notes or, you know, something like that to grow. Even if you just top dress it on top. Yeah, top dress. slow yeah, the bees off. And time of rain and have the rain, you
2: know, rain the seed and the fertilizer in. But Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. The, the scrape trees. That's another thing. And I feel like, I think that it was you guys and Mark and everyone who popularized that first. I mean, I can't think of anyone who I remember oh, seeing yeah. doing it before him. Um, but so you've been doing you guys have been doing it a long yeah, time. Mark had the the, the tree koi. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah Mark had the tree
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, so, so it's been it's been really popularized now. Like almost everyone who has food plots does this. It's it's just such a proven tactic. But, <laughs> oh, yeah, but sure. what do you oh, guys yeah, sure what are you guys doing now that it's been fine-tuned? Like if anyone who's been doing this, you guys have been doing this the longest, what's the, the fine-tuned approach to it now? What are the little things you guys have found that makes this more effective? Um, when it comes to like the, the details, give me the details of how to do the scrape tree to the Mark Drury level of quality in
1: 2023. So we, we started, you know, like I said, maybe a year or two after I started, um, you know and and we just would go dig a hole with you know post diggers and try and bury the tree well we figured that didn't work um so then we we started coming in and literally just driving a t-post in the ground and um wiring with some thick wire uh the tree right to the t-post and that had seemed to to work the best for us and and another thing huge huge uh point here that we've found uh by trial and error and the best tree bar none is definitely a pin oak
3: um like we've tried you know loc- little locust trees yeah. we've tried shingle oaks and pin oaks that hold those hold their leaves forever i mean they'd be dead and still have leaves on them for months on end but they just seem to work those trees over way way better 10 times better than any other tree you can find <laughs> Yeah, those are definitely the best trees and and another thing is is
1: to make sure your limbs um are quartered to the blind. Uh you know your your best scrape limbs, sometimes we'll trim the back side of the the limb so that they can't scrape on the backside of the tree but quarter that quarter those limbs to you so that uh when the deer comes to work um you know they're quartered away the broadside uh for a shot because they're on the backside of the tree It does, you know good. I mean you can shoot them coming and going to it but um to you know just to tweak it to do it perfect we always you know put those trees out there about 18 19 yards and uh and quarter those scrape limbs right towards
3: the line for sure but shingle oak pin oak it, it it'll work every time that's so. the
2: trick and do you ever <clears throat> do you ever fix them up like I, i've had sometimes where a tree has lost all its leaves before i was expecting and i thought to myself man i should go and and wire up a new branch or something, but then I worry about, I don't want to walk out there and leave scent or anything like that. Uh, do you ever go take a piss in the scrape or anything to freshen it up? Do you, is there any other things you would do in season or do you absolutely leave that stuff alone?
1: No, I mean, I would, if they break one of our limbs, we'll absolutely, you know, cut a limb off of a, off of a, the same type of tree and, and go re-add it back, wire it back up. Um, But no, we never start the scrapes or anything like that by pissing in them, or, or you know, we never mess with them. They just do it on their
3: own. Like I've seen like Wade, I've seen them. Wade piss right there where they start <laughs> scraping, and you'll never see a deer there again. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Some tainted piss. <laughs> Sounds like a personal problem.
3: <laughs> um, no, about- but if they, yeah, if they break the tree
2: down, we'll we'll redo it. Okay. Um, camera.
1: And, and another little. Oh yeah, go ahead. Uh, one, one other little tip, um, that we also do is add two, you know, and make them walk between almost like a scrape line. Um, they seem to bounce back and forth to those trees. It's just like a fish to structure and, you know, get them walking right, right there in front of the blind. Give you that,
3: give you that opportunity to shoot one broadside and, you know, stop walking. (laughs) That's,
2: you know, the main, main goal. Uh, okay so that that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. That kind of ties into another thing you sometimes hear folks talk about, which is some people will put a scrape tree in and then they will purposely try to get rid of like other licking branches on the field so that the only, you know, good spot for a scrape would be, you know, your scrape tree right within range. And then I've heard other people who like to have like as many licking branches as possible because they want you know stuff to keep deer in the air they want like time wasters so that the buck will stick around and scrape here and scrape there and scrape there and never make it to the neighbors you know until after dark um do you guys ever worry about anything like that or or is that you know not on your radar no i mean
1: that's that's pretty uh deep i guess um but no i mean we don't we don't go cutting any other scrape limbs down or anything like that like Kind of like you said, like, I think it's, it's better because whenever a buck's, you
3: know, on that, that scrape run, it just, he'll hit them all. And they seem to, they seem to hit the scrape tree and mood. yeah, and the natural on the tree line that yeah. they'll hit 20 in a row if they got them there, you know? Yeah. No, we've never went and cut them down.
2: So I was going to ask then about your camera setup on the scrape trees. Now those have been premier, you know, photo ops for, for you guys over the years What's the um, current best setup for getting cameras and pictures on those scrape trees? Now, how do you guys like to position them? Um, And do you ever worry about those? You know, I've always worried about these cameras, like on a T post or something right out in the open, like spooking some of the deer. Do you guys worry about that at all? And I guess, what are the other details for your setups on your scrapes?
1: No, I mean, we've never really worried about that. It's kind of like blinds on our farms. and just like, basically trees because all these deer have grown up walking past them i mean i would say over 60 percent of our our cameras are out in the middle yeah you know on t-post and and now they have no no fear of them or we've never seen that um you know the only thing we've ever had them get very weary on has been cell cameras i don't know if it's a click or or what it what it may be but um, we've we've tried or I but but then again like that's only a very rare occasion but other yeah. than that um we haven't really ever had any issues
3: right normally our cameras are on a t-post out in the food plot and the scrape tree is main framed you know main in the center of the frame and then we try to position them to where if it's triggered, if a buck's there or a deer in general's there, you can see what else is out in the field, you know, get a background shot also, you know, kind of two for one, if you will. Yep. And then another, another key thing when setting up
1: cameras, a lot of people don't, don't realize and, uh, yeah, is, is facing it, uh, not, not West, not Southwest and try and avoid even South. Um, just because when that deer movement time is, it seems like, uh, a lot of sun, yeah, you just get them blown out or, or backlit and you just can't really tell what it is. So avoid that Southwest sun in the evenings. And, and, uh, so if you can face it North or, or Southeast, um, or any northerly is ideal. Yeah. Um, because again, it just, you can mess up pictures in a hurry. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and we always try and like to also be on the uphill side, kind of pointing downward, versus if looking up a hill. Most of the time, it it gives you that backlit view. So we always try and if you're on a hill, face it on the downhill, face it downhill. It seems to definitely help get
3: those better quality pictures. Yeah, yeah. you can add one of you can add one of Mark's pet peeves as a sunlit back photo on a trail camera that me wade put out he's, he's not happy about that oh and <laughs> the thing is, is we don't the thing is we don't check those trail cameras
1: very often now that uh we got cells so uh you know you let it sit there for a month or so and and all the photos are backlit yeah that uh, yeah. doesn't make a happy boss <laughs> You gotta be aware of where you're at yeah, yeah. details details details
2: yes sure so so back to the the food plot architecture side of things so we've talked about scrape trees will help you get shots we've talked about the walking strips um what about actual shapes and designs of the plots um I, i've talked or i've heard mark talk about in the past about planting to the location i think he will say sometimes he'll mm-hmm. so like pick yep. a tree and then like design a plot around it um can you talk through some of the design choices now you know it seems like a lot of guys will just make a big square or a big circle or something mm-hmm. but I see you guys sometimes doing horseshoes and different things like that. Um, what are some of those best designs you guys have found?
1: Um, you know, one of the best and one that we have the most success on is that horseshoe shape. Um, and again, planting to, to your position, obviously we try and put our blind, you know, at, at the top end of the horseshoe and, uh, you know, we have a plot or a boomerang horseshoe all the same, but we have a, more of a radish-type plot for, for, you know, bow season. They seem to like the radishes more during bow season. We'll plant that, you know, right up close to the blind, and uh, and then out on the ends we'll have, you know, winter bulb of sugar beets or, or clover or, you know... Standing beans. Standing beans, yeah. So the horseshoe is, is one of our favorites just because they have to almost walk the whole plot to see what's on the other side. You know, so or they'll be right in front of you where they can see down both sides. It just seems like a they move through that type of plot better just because they're, you know, so curious and they want to get to that point where they can see everything that's in the field.
2: Yeah. Are there any others that you've been using lately or that have worked well? Or is that now like your the number one? Um. You know,
1: another really good one that, that we like to do if we're just, I mean... We do a lot of green fields. Um the main another main shape that we do in that is just like a football field. So like basically if they step into your green green plot, you're gonna get a shot. So fifty yards across, fifty yards either way, and uh seems to be about the right size that they won't eat it out. Um, you know, and and really good size for bow hunting. Yeah. So those are the probably the two best I would say. Mm-hmm
3: and always just natural structure that's on a farm. Like we'd plant some spots that have natural fence gaps where they've walked for years. And, you know, we bring our green walking strips through that fence gap and then bringing them past us in a blind, um, you know, natural structure works really good too. Also, if we create a new plot like you were talking about Mark picks a tree and that's kind of the, uh, Turning point of the horseshoe or boomerang, if you will. You know, that's kind of the center of it.
2: So, you know, another thing I think I've seen a few times, and I'm curious if this is something you do a lot. I've seen in some of these plots that are more of like rectangular ish, I've seen what looks like you guys are almost building a wall or laying blowdowns in a wall kind of right near where your blind or tree stand is and then leaving a gap though. So there's basically like, if you imagine you have a rectangle and then if your are blind is at the 50 yard line, in the middle of the field, I've seen some plots where then on the opposite side from your 50, you'll have like a, a wall of trees that goes halfway across that pinches down the movement across that plot to really close to your blinder stand. Am I seeing that? Did you guys make those or are those just some, you know, coincidental natural structure that I'm seeing in some of these plots?
1: No, we always, we always use that type of stuff. Um, You know, I mean, we put it on, on the same side as our blind as well, just again, for access coming and going, um, because going is just as important as coming. Um, so you could slide down behind that wall of, you know, trees that you may have taken out of that plot when you built it and, uh, you know, not affect the deer that are on the plot. You just build it up high enough and and slide in, slide out without the deer even knowing you're coming. And like what you were saying, the ones that are across the field. Um, same thing, just as a basically just to pinch them down. You know, deer pretty uh, easy to guide. They they like the path of least resistance, so they're gonna walk around the end of that and, and push them right in closer to bow range.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm 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 recall another. These are like all the little weird things I've noticed over the years. But something that I heard maybe it was you, Wade, talk about or someone talked about one point was thinking about where food plots will shade first. And that, that sometimes impacting how you plant or where you position things. Can you can you explain that a little bit? Because that's something I've never thought about before.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you watch a field, those deer that come out early, they always go to that shade. I don't know if it's you – know, I know why it is. It's because they feel more secure there um, in that darker part of the field. Early season, it's cooler. Um, so, yeah, they'll definitely uh, – go to that shaded side of the field first. Um, like I said, just for out of whether it be early season in the, uh, in the heat, they go to that shade and, and they feel more secure in that. So yeah, we'll definitely try and get closer to that shady side of the field if, if that's the type of plot design that um, that we have in that particular spot. But they definitely, every single time you, you watch a field, you'll see that if people pay attention to that, they'll definitely see where them deer are coming and they'll early season we've had them run across like come out on the other side of the field run across the sun and just stop and put their heads down right in that shade right at the shade line and it's funny as the sun starts to fall the deer start to ease up you know just follow that shade line they'll be right on it for sure especially early season yeah Yeah. early warm is the main main time for that
2: it's interesting um
0: For all things auto, do it yourself, and you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today, or visit us at o'reillyauto.com/meat eater. That's o'reillyauto.com/meat eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy
2: you mentioned the uh when i asked you about the down tree walls and stuff like that you you mentioned how sometimes you'll put those on your side of the field to help with access is there anything else you guys are doing with your food plots to help you with that access and exit you know I, i've some guys will hinge cut the whole side of a field so they can slip out behind that some guys do use blowdowns i mean i've heard all sorts of different things what do you guys usually use or or set up so that you can get out of these places i always wonder like you guys hunt so many field edge setups and and there's always so yeah. many deer on them. I'm always shocked that you guys can get in and out without these deer catching on really quick.
3: Yeah, for sure. Um like this year in a big bottom we have, we you know plant plant blockers, standing corn, um any kind of blocker grass if you will, plant that. Also, there's some spots where we jump in creek beds and walk those all the way from the road to the ladder of the back of the blind. I mean, you know, anything that puts you your profile below, you know, eyesight is is great. And the corn worked really good this year. We haven't hadn't done that in that bottom this year and, and tried it and it worked great. Snuck into that blind a few times with deer out on the field. Yep. So, um, and
1: and back to these smaller parcel farms,
3: you know, ac-
1: access is key key because coming and going because you know if you only have one small farm and you're you got the right wind, you know say two nights three nights in a row you're going to want to go back in there the next night but you know by night two if you blow that field off the second night in a row on your exit you know they're going to those mature bucks are, are going to you know it's going to start affecting them so if you can get in and out of your blind without the deer knowing that you're there like I said exit's just as key as entrance so If you can get out of there without them even knowing you're there, you're going to be able to hunt those small farms, uh, you know, and not have to give them such a break because if the deer don't know you're there, you know, and your wind's perfect, your access is perfect. You know, you'll be able to come and go as you please. So that's why we do on some of these smaller farms, you know, try and
3: make access number one.
1: Yeah. More so than our bigger farms. I mean, even when
3: always number one. Even when we get out of the blind, like, you know, you just get a flashlight out of your pack and you know get a light out so they don't associate with your wind or your scent when you get out of the blind i mean we even owl hoot, screech at them coyote howl something natural to get them to bump off the field not just walk down not just some guy climbing out of a blind you know yeah
2: yeah those are always stressful moments when uh, you you think you've got it <laughs> cleared and you finally slip out of the tree and then something blows right behind you or something <laughs> but uh <laughs> yeah. yeah we've all been there um another kind of large topic that we probably don't have time to get into the real details of it but it's also something that's been covered a thousand times and that's you know making decisions about what to plant and and that's very situation dependent and location dependent soil quality dependent all that kind of stuff um but i but i have noticed something and i'm curious if this is true or if it's just something that i am mistakenly picking up on i i've it seems like rarely do I ever see a food plot that you guys have planted that's just one thing anymore like it's very rarely just like a oh it's just uh, an oat plot. It's usually like a combination of something like a like a radish plot here in the corner by your stand and then it transitions to something else and then it transitions to something else do you is that the case? do you guys always layer different things in each plot now <clears throat> or if if so, why uh, and if not you know describe the situations when you would
1: yeah, no I mean. I would say that that is the case on, on a lot of our fields. And, and again, that's just, uh, the whole sole purpose for that is, is hunting different times of the year. You know, we plant the products that they prefer late, um, whether it be grain or, or bulbs or, or brassicas, um, out of the distance when we would most likely be hunting with a, a gun. And then up close, you know, we have the clover or radish, something that they prefer, um, early season, uh, you know, until that post-rut time, you know, it seems like uh, they really prefer those earlier. So we just plant basically on, on time of year that we're trying to hunt that particular field, if there's a particular target there, um, when we want to try and target him based on uh, history with him, when he shows up, uh, so on and so forth. So it just kind of determine what deer we're targeting. Um, and then we almost sometimes will even plant for a particular deer, of what he had preferred the year before when he showed up, when we think we could kill him, um, stuff like that. So, but yeah, no, that, that is correct. We do layer, uh, for that purpose, basically because most of our fields, we have to plant them big enough that, uh, you know, that they'll make. So therefore to get them within bow range, we have to plant a product that they prefer during both seasons. Yeah.
2: What, what do you guys feel like this is kind of going back to where we started a little bit, but um as far as like the size of one of these things to actually make a difference, do you guys have like a minimum size food plot that you guys have found like eh, if it's less than this size, it really doesn't do much for us. Um is that is that a thing in your mind or, or will you do a half acre food plot if it's in the right place because it's it's still got some power at that size?
3: I uh, I would say For sure, we will do a half acre. We've got some half acre green fields, but they're uh, tucked into a bean field or corn field that's carved out. Um, So there's more acres there for them to eat. I mean, and also I think a lot of that depends on your deer density, you know, across the Midwest, whether it's you in Michigan or, you know, somewhere else in the Midwest and in the South, like there might be places where you only see five, six deer a night, where up here, Uh, there's so much habitat and the deer density is so high we have to make that food plot mean something to them not only from a drawing standpoint to draw them in to get them to come feed there but also yeah sustainable that they're going to be able to feed on it for a month two months you know in a lot of these places you see 20 30 deer so you got to have got to have some acres to sustain those mouths yeah. that or, or just
1: something that, that regrows, re- regenerates, like
3: clover or wheat, rye, yeah. you know, that type of, of grain, especially uh, the walking strips. Like they're so small and they work so good. Yeah. That's why we always go with, you know, winter grass or, you know, wheat, rye, something, something that keeps growing, even though they nip it off. Yeah. Uh,
2: okay. So last food question, which is, related to a challenge i know you guys felt this year a lot of people felt this year i did um and over a lot of recent years which is drought you know planting a food plot in august and then you know the rain that was supposed to come doesn't come and you get a failure of some kind what have you guys learned over these recent years as far as dealing with that and how can you recover Uh, you know i used to think like i plant something a drought came and it it was really crappy and then i was kind of like ah well i'm doomed um, and I've been trying later plantings and subsequent second or third seedings and different stuff like that. What have you guys found has helped you deal with that situation best?
1: Well, we'll, say, we'll say that, uh, all of our green fields were doomed this year. We plant, I think every single greenfield we went across, we replanted it three times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously the, the last planting did the best and, and sometimes the second planting did all right. Um, but you know. We uh we have a, a trailer with a sixteen hundred and fifty gallon water tank on it that uh you know we again we target key bucks and uh plots that we're wanting to try and kill them on. And uh we'll go in, we'll fence off those plots and we'll water it. One of our uh one of our best fields this year, we fenced it off right after it was planted, didn't even let it get up and Perry, mostly Perry, uh watered it, you know. He he'd put an inch of rain on it once a week and uh it turned out to be one of our our uh best plots and yeah. an, inch, an inch of rain across an acre it was a hundred and some thousand gallons
3: i think it, uh, it well that's total i had like an economical amount yeah i i watered four or five key plots this summer during the drought and i had over one hundred forty thousand gallons of water put down i believe is is a rounded number it was it was in that hundred and forty, hundred and fifty thousand range. What we watered this year. Yeah, it was wow. it was insane.
2: And, and so mean,
3: about eight tanks about eight tanks a day, um I would do and we have a sixteen hundred gallon tank that's bolted to a trailer with a pump, so six roughly sixteen thousand Yeah, gallons. about sixteen thousand gallons a day and I did that for a few weeks.
2: Isn't that, that crazy? It's on. crazy how much work that is to do manually and mother nature just does it so easily on its own. Oh,
1: <laughs> one, one hour could save a week worth of work, you know, it's crazy. But yeah. I mean, we, we talk about that all the time of, of, how, I was like, dang it. One, one half inch rain would, would save us a week's worth of work, of <laughs> solid work, you know, solid watering.
2: Yeah. Jeez. Um, that's wild, and so how how did that pay off for you guys? Did those four or five key food plots end up being worth it? uh
1: yeah,
3: absolutely, yeah, I mean, we dirt de- definitely had some fresh green to hunt over. um I don't know but most, but all of our third planting stuff was yeah. we planted all the way into
1: October um the first part of October, I think we were planting wheat wheat oats, and we got those October rains, and it actually. Did all right, but that was our saving grace. That third planting that we we went in and drilled, but uh, but yeah, those those ones that he watered um, were definitely key spots because there was zero green anywhere. Wow! So we did have some key spots to to hunt, but it, it's hard to to grab all of them. You just have to pick your key one key plots
2: and and uh, focus on those. That's all you can do. So so back to that third planting. Would you guys say that you know? Doing that late September or early October planting of some kind of cereal grain, you know, it sounds like that was still worth it. You got enough growth out of it that it actually helped, and the the late the late activity didn't hurt you too much.
1: Um, no, I mean it, it. definitely definitely helped us for um, you know as mild as this as this um, winter was. You know, they always come back to green really really heavy right after the rut. And, uh, those were some of our best plots with those, you know, wheat and oat cereal grain plots, uh, that we planted in late September, early October. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely, definitely made a huge change because again, there was no green anywhere else. No one else could get any green to grow. Um, because again, they would give up after about the second planting, um, you know, so it yeah. did, it definitely did pay off, but well, we went over those fields so many times, countless yeah. hours, um. All you know, all for this season, and again, that stuff, those weeks worth of watering, you know, just nonstop watering for eight, ten hours a day, um, you know, those three times across this field, those, the things that a lot of people don't see and scratch their head when we're succeeding, um, you know, it's just the for sure. the man hours that we put to 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 make everything go around,
2: you know. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely and an investment. In for sure. Um. So uh, I want to talk to you, Perry, about a specialty of yours. Um, shifting gears here a little bit since we've, I've, I've somehow sucked an hour of your time already just talking about food. Um, <laughs> y- you guys both talked about how you important can... cover is. And, uh, and cover is you know something sometimes that you're naturally blessed with on a property, and sometimes you have to create it. Um, when it comes to creating new bedding cover or putting it in the places you want, you mentioned something really interesting, which is that you go out there with a chainsaw and you're gonna, you know, walk into the timber until you know you're at least 100, 150 yards away from that food, so you can, you know, access without spooking deer off the bedding. Um, can you can you share any other specific detail type things you're thinking about when you go and try to create these bedding or better cover pockets with the chainsaw? What are some of the other things that you're thinking about when you're out there doing it? Whether it's the locations, the size of these patches that you're cutting um, any other decisions you're making up there?
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, Mark doesn't want his entire timber looking like a deadfall, um, you know, with underbrush everywhere. So we kind of pocket it. We make, you know, we make little homes for the deer, if you will. Um, you get that distance that we talked about earlier, you get to that spot and you look around and, uh, in Mark's timber, I pretty much cut everything except, uh, oaks and walnuts. That, that's uh, cleared by him, I, I mean, I'm mean, i not going to say that everybody needs to do that, but uh, we pretty much take every tree we don't want besides those two species, and uh, we make a, you know, whether it's an 80 by 80 yard or 50 by 50 yard uh, shape or area, and we, we drop all the trees in that area. We might not drop them all, we might ring some just to have some dead stands and to get the sunlight to the floor, And we do this in areas that we, you know, on the 50 50 acre piece where Mark killed his big deer this year, um, it was wide open timber. A lot, a lot of hickories, younger 18 inch type hickories that and and, and a few oaks scattered in and out of there. But mainly hickories, which have very little, um, you know, food and wildlife specifies for deer at least. Um, values. So went in there and did some pretty extensive TSI in, in a big area, about 150, 200 yards from that plot. And uh, this year, I mean, we held in that, it's probably 40 acres of timber. In that timber, we held more deer in there this year than probably ever has in an entire, its entire life, because you could see from one end to the other, and now you currently cannot. So...
2: When do you, when do you choose to do the ringing versus completely falling the tree? Is it, do you all do you prefer to do bring the whole thing in the ground most of the time because it gets you that ground level cover plus the sunlight, or or how do you make that decision between the two different, applicate or ways to do it?
3: Yeah, I mean, I would say I would say I'm probably seventy percent bringing it down and thirty percent ringing. Um, we've got some leases that people allowed us to do TSI, but they don't want a big mess. And so in that case, we, you know, ring more to let them them stand dead, but you still get that sunlight to the floor of the forest. Um, If I'm creating, you know, if it's a smaller farm where say I'm creating an 80 by 80 uh, pocket of TSI, I'm gonna bring a lot down because in that small pocket of timber, you're gonna want as much floor cover as possible you know, you're going to want as many canopies you can get on the, on the ground. Yeah.
2: What about hinge cutting? Do you guys ever do that?
3: Certainly. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's safe where your, wear your gear and, you know, protect yourself and be smart of where you do it and where you cut the tree. Um, but to get a tree to lay on the ground and continue to produce foliage, um, You got it. You got to hinge cut it. There's not a whole lot of other
2: ways to get it there. And do you do that in a similar kind of pocket kind of design like you're doing with your general TSI as well? Correct. Yes. Okay. Now, another bedding area I see you guys hunting around a lot is uh, some kind of grass. I see some, some pretty extensive use of some kind of native grasses, I'm assuming, on a variety of your farms. What do you do you ever plant grass specifically for bedding or is it more often like transition from timber to food? I think I've seen both with you guys, but how do you guys usually look at grasses and what's, what are you guys using them for and how?
1: You know, we do Mark, one of Mark's first farms up here in Iowa was basically cattle, cattle pasture with a giant draw, um, down through the middle with a bunch of fingers off of it. And uh, like I said, it was grazed by cattle for years. It was three-inch tall grass. And, uh, you know, we, he came in, this was before my time, but he came in, planted warm season grasses throughout the whole thing, enrolled it in CRP and uh, turned it into possibly one of the best farms in southern Iowa that literally was just a grown-up cattle pasture. And mostly the the grass served as a buffer uh, to make those draws that much more uh, appealing it, you know, and give them that much more security cover, uh, more so than, than the bedding. I mean, they do bed out in the grass. Um, but I would say it's, it's definitely more of a buffer to make the draws in the timber that much more appealing to the deer and access, you know, getting, getting around the farm, getting, uh, from spot to spot. So, um, they do bed in it, but I would say it's more of a transition buffer safety, uh, type thing for them. And, you know we we do a mix of of uh big blue little blue uh cave and rock switch um and some some different indian grasses and the reason that we do the mixture is because it it gives the diversity and the heights. um you're anywhere from you know three foot or you know knee to mid thigh all the way up to eight nine foot tall grasses and and those uh pockets of that shorter grass allows the deer to to walk through you know if you do a solid cave and rock switch you know that stuff gets so thick that you know a deer can't even hardly walk through it or walk through it comfortably so um we do it you know with that with that mixture of different heights of grass and uh you know you could you could turn a, a cattle farm into a really good deer farm with uh you know all that extra cover of the grass and then, you know, a little bit of T S I in the in the draws and stuff. Um but yeah, it's it's more of a buffer on our stuff than uh than it is for actual betting,
2: I would okay. say. Okay. Is there anything else you guys are doing when it comes to that cover side of the equation? Any other tricks up your sleeve or projects that you work on many years that that help on that side of things, outside of grasses and doing some T S I? Mm,
1: no. No, the how you think anything. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I mean, those are the two the two main things that we we do to improve improve cover. Yeah, I mean, burns if, you know yeah.
3: normally on grasses though.
1: So. Yeah, we do burn our timber some as well. Um, yeah, especially you have to watch your, your TSI areas because you burn all your your cover there. So you kind of got to go around and and you know make fire lines and stuff around your TSI so that doesn't burn up, but we'll run a fire through our our timber and and bring on that new growth. And, and, uh, you know, particularly right after, you know, the spring, the springtime, right after we do ring a bunch of trees and, uh, open up that soil. So that sunlight from those trees that are rung can, uh, shine through and, and turn it into a jungle. Wow.
2: So what would be, you know, with you, if you were to set off on your own, let's say you guys are now both, you've got a little nest egg from all your hard work. You've got a little money. You bought your own little farm and you've somehow have enough time to do your own work for a little bit. But Mark says, you can't use any of my equipment. You can't, you can't use my big water tank. You can't take my tractor, you know, man up boys and do it on your own, figure it out. And so now you're on a tight budget and you've got limited equipment and your first farm is a little 40 acre piece or something. And you, You know, you had to get started with, with a little bit more limited resources and stuff like that. What would be one thing you've learned from all your time here with Mark? What's one project or one thing you've learned that you would try to apply on a budget to improve your first farm? I don't know if something comes to mind, but if you, you know, if it's, if it's a food plot, you're going to plant, how do you think you could do it on a budget with, with limited equipment? If instead you're like, man, I'm going to do this other kind of project. You know, how could you do something on tight time, tight budget, in a small place? Um, what would that one thing that comes to mind for you first, Perry? Be
3: I was going to let Wade go first, but I, <laughs> but I can tell you mine. Okay. Um, I I mean, I kind of I kind of got this. My dad and I have 80 acres together in northern Missouri. Um, we don't we don't have a lot of money to do much of anything really, but uh, this year I'm gonna i'll seed almost three and a half acres of clover and uh I bought a hundred dollar box blind and redid it. So I got a box blind and I'm gonna have a huge clover field. So <laughs> Area. um that's that's me really. I I don't have a big green food source, you're gonna have a lot of deer that use it. I mean clover is one of the cheapest, easiest food plots you can do, and I mean the palatability is amazing. We've killed a lot of deer on clover and uh cheap box blind hold a little bit of scent in, you know, get that upper hand on them. But that would be mine is, is a clover field and a, and a good box blind.
2: I like it. What about you, Wade?
1: Yeah, I was kind of going to go down the same path, uh, as Perry, uh, in the fact of, you know, putting in, you know, hopefully you have a little bit of cover on that farm already that you can improve by, you know, most everybody owns a chainsaw, a little bit of TSI to thicken it up and, and hold deer. And then, uh, you know, go in with a mower, you know, your lawnmower and uh, mow it all, mow down an area for a little food plot and, uh, you know, then go in and, and burn that, that area off. And then, you know, if you don't have a drill or, or anything like that, you could, you know, burn it and then top dress your clover and, and maybe roll it in with a cultivator you could go rent, you know, behind a four-wheeler or a truck even. And, uh, but clovers, like Perry was saying, is just so palatable to them. It's really easy to get to grow because it's such a small seed and, uh, it's pretty low maintenance overall. You know, you could take your, your house lawnmower and and mow the weeds out of it. You could spray it with a backpack sprayer and, uh, it, it it keeps regenerating. So you don't have to have a, a giant food plot. You know, you could have a, you know, a half acre food plot and, and be able to hand spray it or four wheeler spray it and uh, not need all the equipment, but, you know, Clovers, like I said, is pretty pretty easy to grow and fairly cheap and, and easy to maintain and keeps growing year after year. So, I mean, if you just frost seed it, and, you know, February every year and uh, keep the grass and weeds off of it with spray, you'll have a food plot there every year with low maintenance and, and low cost. Yeah. So, I mean, plant food and CSI would be the two things that about anybody could do, even if you go to your you know a little rental place they can about rent you a pull behind disc if you want to do that or you know it's not that expensive to to rent stuff you don't have to own everything but you can definitely rent stuff that you know you you could even pull one of those behind your truck everybody has a truck so um you know just small things like that is is easy to do with just house household stuff i mean heck whenever i was a whenever i was in high school uh my grandpa he owned a 80 acre farm and, uh, my dad and I were out there with, with rakes and weed eaters and we were, you know, rake, I mean, it wasn't a big plot at all, but we got, uh, we got a green field to grow by, you know, TSI and, you know, some of that, uh, timber where the light would get down into it. We were right on the edge of the timber, uh, because he had a crop field. So we had to go right on the edge of the timber and we went in and, uh, rung those trees where the light would get down to the plot and, uh, weed eat all the weeds that grew in the timber and raked all the leaves out of there and, and got that seed down and raked it all in. It was a lot of handwork, but we had a small little greenfield to to hunt over. So it could be done. Um, you know, it takes a little time and a little bit of effort and, uh, but you could have, have a little plot to, to
2: hunt over for sure, but definitely food always helps. Yep. Hard to argue with that. So I want to, I want to let you guys go so you can, uh, get your stuff together and get ready to go coyote hunting tonight. But uh, one last question, which is that I'm curious, as you look forward to this new year, and I'm sure you guys have already been thinking about this. I got to believe that Mark's already staying up late at night, not sleeping, thinking about the one buck or the two big bucks or whatever deer he's hoping and praying will survive and make it to next year. I'm wondering if you have a buck like that in mind already, what do you think the most important habitat project is going to be for you guys in 2023 to help you kill whatever that one or two or whatever these target bucks are that you're really hoping are going to blow and and survive next year is there one project that comes to mind that you guys are thinking like man there's probably buck a and there's this little food plot that i know we got to fix up or is there anything that you guys can think of off the top of your minds that you know you're really going to have to nail this year you know the main thing is all of our stuff is pretty
1: dialed. I mean, we haven't really gotten any new farms over the last couple of years, so everything's pretty dialed in from that standpoint. So, I mean, the main thing that we got to focus on is just making sure we have good food plots. We get them in with the timely rain. We make sure they're prepped perfect, um, you know, just so we have the food that we need to uh, sustain us all year to, to be able to kill that deer. I mean, that's our number one thing. so like I said, we've got everything pretty well dialed from the point of like, in, yeah. improvements,
3: I mean. Yeah, we just picked up a a new 120 acre lease. Um, It's kind of a, uh, it'll be a project farm, if you will. We got clearance from the CRP program to do, you know, big grain field, big green field. And it's kind of out away from uh, some huge cover. I mean, there's some good cover on it, but it'll be interesting to see what bucks we hold from summer to winter because we don't have a pile of cover we got some so it'll be a nice project farm i think we're going to dial it up real nice and i look forward to to seeing what it produces
2: nice well i think you know everybody should know to be checking out deer cast and be checking out the youtube channel uh to, to follow along these kinds of things but is there anything Specific you want to send folks to to check out, or for us to be keeping an eye out? Anything new we should be keeping an eye out for this year when it comes to content or, or anything else, or should we just stay tuned and, and keep on following along?
1: Yeah, I mean, DeerCast is our our main outlet for all of our new stuff. I mean, you know, you get in the now content right there. Uh, with turkey season coming up, we'll be doing doing all the the lives again and and having a uh, turkey season 23 where uh you know they could watch all of our turkey kills right there you know within a day or so of, of us killing so we're gonna get that instant instant gratification so just stay tuned to to deer cast and and the feed there and um best of luck to everybody this spring and uh and and working towards that uh that fall
2: yep we'll be here <laughs> so, before we know turkey
3: it. beware we're, yeah we're we're ready <laughs> Turkey, Turkey,
2: beware we're coming for you. <laughs> you guys can have the deer. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, hey guys, I, I appreciate you taking time to do this. I know that uh this this slight slowdown is um time that you cherish, I'm sure. So thanks for for sharing a little bit of that time with me and, and talking habitat. This has been fun.
3: Absolutely. I appreciate it, Mark. Anytime, man.
2: All right, and that's a wrap. Thank you all for joining me. Like I said, be sure to check out what they've got going on over on Deercast. Uh, big thanks to Wade, Perry, Mark, and the whole team. Um, I've appreciated what they've shared with the world for many years and with their generous, you know, the, the, the fact that they're always willing to chat with me and chat with us here at the podcast. Uh, I certainly have learned a lot and uh, I think a lot of you have too. So thanks, gentlemen. Thank you all for listening. It's time to start getting back to work. If we've had a little break from deer, now it's time to dive back in. We have work to do out on the property. If you own land or lease land, or have access to something with a buddy who does have the ability to do improvements, it's a great time to get out there, do some work, have fun with it, and uh, invest in your future now by doing this work and and help all the critters that live out there too. So it's a win-win in my book. So thanks all. Appreciate you. And until next time, stay wired to hunt.